You're listening to WORT Local News, the special year in review edition. I'm your host, Nate Wuggyhout. Tonight, we look back at some of Madison's traffic issues. Later on in the show, we'll look at biking in the pandemic and the tumultuous history of bus rapid transit. But first, let's dive into traffic crashes. Whether on the Beltline or the downtown area, Madison has had traffic issues for years. In 2020, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway launched the Vision Zero campaign, which aims to end preventable traffic fatalities in the city by 2030 by lowering speed limits across the city. That came amid a nationwide rise in crashes between vehicles and pedestrians. According to NBC15, crashes have risen across the nation by 46% over the last decade. One of the campaign's first projects is on East Washington Avenue. According to WKOW, by November there had been six deaths on that road alone in 2021. In April of this year, Jonah Chester reported on the city's first foray into reducing speed limits in two Madison neighborhoods. Under the proposal, residential speed limits in several neighborhoods would be dropped by 5 miles per hour. The switch to 20 miles per hour rather than 25 may sound small, but according to the city, the switch could spur a major reduction in serious injuries. According to the city, a person hit by a vehicle going 20 miles per hour has a 13% chance of fatality or serious injury. But when that speed is increased to 30 miles per hour, the potential for serious injury or death jumps threefold to 40%. The plan, entitled 20 is Plenty, could eventually be rolled out citywide. But two Madison neighborhoods are poised to see a test run of the plan this summer. Exactly which neighborhoods have yet to be determined. Jeremy Nash, an engineer with the city's traffic engineering division, says that a number of factors are being considered in who gets included in the first phase. One important component to um, phase one is kind of what we're looking at this year. And we want to get as many different street designs as we can to select areas that have a variety of different street designs, whether that's one-sided parking or two-sided parking, um, you know, narrow street, wide street, if there's existing traffic calming um, features on it. So we're hoping to kind of get there as wide as net, net as we can um, and kind of get as much different experience with um, changing the speed limit on a variety of different streets. The Capital Times reports that the city of Madison documented 15 traffic-related fatalities last year, the highest number in at least six years. Madison's spike tracks with a statewide increase in fatal car crashes last year. Those bumps occurred despite a statewide drop in the number of cars on the road at the beginning of the pandemic. The city has already dropped speed limits on some of Madison's major thoroughfares, including, among others, East Washington Avenue and East Gammon Road. The 20 is Plenty proposal currently being floated is similar, although it focuses on Madison's smaller neighborhood roads. Reducing speed limits as a whole is a major part of Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway's Vision Zero initiative. The program was announced last July, and it seeks to eliminate traffic fatalities and severe injuries by 2030. Speaking at a press conference announcing the initiative last summer, Mayor Rhodes-Conway said that black residents are disproportionately impacted by traffic accidents. According to Vision Zero, black Dane County residents are roughly twice as likely to be involved in fatal car accidents compared to their white counterparts. And we know that our black community is more likely to die in a car crash than others in our community. We must address the disproportionate burden of traffic fatalities and serious injuries on people of color, people walking and biking, and on low-income communities. For Rhodes-Conway, this project is personal. Both her grandfather and five-year-old brother died in a car accident the year she graduated from college. I can't bring them back. But I can, and I will, work to prevent other families from losing their loved ones to traffic crashes. Phase one of the project to lower neighborhood speed limits is set to begin this June. The city will analyze data and information from that limited rollout before implementing a wider scale rollout next spring. Reporting for WORT News. I'm Jonah Chester. By August, the Tenney Lapham and Teresa Hammersley neighborhoods officially adopted the 20 is Plenty program. Each year, the city's Traffic Engineering Division releases what they call their Crash Facts Report, which highlights every reported crash in the city, documenting where and how the crashes happened. But with Vision Zero, these Crash Facts got a bit of a revamp to help teach people 
what mistakes other drivers are making. Earlier this month, I read the Crash Facts report and had a few takeaways. Last year, there were fewer total crashes in the city of Madison, but 2020 also saw the highest number of fatal crashes over the last five years. That's according to a new report released by the city's Traffic Engineering Division. The current five-year average for fatal crashes is nine crashes, with 2020 having the highest number of fatal crashes within the last five years with 12. In comparison, there were 33 fatal crashes throughout all of Dane County in 2020. Those and many more numbers are included in a 2020 Crash Facts report presented at last night's Transportation Commission meeting. The report provides details of all reported crashes that took place in the city of Madison last year. That report defines reported crashes as any crash that caused injury as well as at least $1,000 in property damages. The report also only looks at publicly owned streets, so no privately owned roads or those maintained by UW-Madison. The report is given every year but has received some updates as part of Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway's Vision Zero plan, which aims at eliminating traffic deaths on city streets by 2030. Mark Winters with the Department of Traffic Engineering explains why the report is important. It's full of statistics that drivers can use to find out what <clears throat> what other what mistakes other drivers are are making. It's also just our, our uh, it's our starting point for further analysis on uh, when we do street projects and uh, or safety projects. In total, 12 crashes led to 15 fatalities out of a total of 3,309 total reported crashes in 2020. That's fewer crashes than the five-year average of 4,862 crashes, although the data was collected over the COVID-19 pandemic. Average weekday traffic numbers had stayed roughly the same, according to the report. At intersections, there were 2,037 vehicle crashes last year, 622 of which caused injury, and seven led to fatalities. According to the report, a majority of those crashes occurred at traffic lights, 56%. Of the top 30 highest crash intersections in the city, only one was not with a traffic light. That would be the intersection of Schmaderman and East Washington Avenue, which has a stop sign. The intersection of Buckeye and Stoughton Road on the city's east side saw the highest number of crashes for a total of 29. Other intersections that saw high crash rates were Gammon and Watts Road on the west side, Stoughton Road and East Washington Avenue, and West Johnson and Park Street. But if you're looking to find the most dangerous intersection in Madison, that would involve using a metric over a five-year period called Equivalent Property Damage Only Scores, or EPDO scores. City traffic engineer Yang Tao explains where the scores came from and why they are important to the city of Madison. So, yeah, these uh, was created by Wisconsin Traffic Operations and a Safety Lab, uh, also along with the uh, Madison Area uh, Transportation Planning Board. Uh, so the idea of this is that um, not all crashes are the same. You know, some have a much bigger impacts uh, than others. And you know, simply looking at crashes by uh, frequency uh, is not the best idea. So we need some way to account for the severity of the crashes. According to EPDO data, the most dangerous intersection in Madison is actually the intersection of Acewood Boulevard and Cottage Grove Road on the city's southeast side. Although it has fewer total crashes, 32, it is the only intersection to have multiple fatalities. The highest number of car crashes outside of intersections occurred on John Nolan Drive, six on the 400 block and another five west of the Monona Terrace traffic signal. And of course, there were bike crashes. There were a total of 53 bike crashes in 2020, with 47 of them leading to injuries. None were fatal. Though the bike crashes happened around the entire city, they were mostly concentrated in the downtown area. Another 39 crashes involving pedestrians were recorded in 2020, with two fatalities. Most of these crashes were at signalized intersections and were largely clustered around the areas near the UW campus. Finally, there were five reported moped crashes, with no reported fatalities. Yang says that all of the data is needed to figure out how to make Vision Zero a reality. So Vision Zero is really a collaborative uh, and a collective effort uh, to be comprehensive. Uh, you know, we, uh, we tackle the problem from all uh, different angles. Only doing that, we can achieve our uh, Vision Zero goal. More information on the report, as well as other traffic data in Madison, can be found on the City of Madison's website by searching Traffic Engineering. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Help. Like
One thing that the report had shown for certain was that traffic fatalities were on the rise. And you have to look no further than East Washington Avenue to see the result. In just a two-week span from June to July, there were two separate traffic deaths on East Washington Avenue, confirming what residents who lived on the road already knew that East Washington was dangerous. Back in July, producer Will Chosey spoke with Channel 3000 investigative reporter Naomi Coles about fatalities on East Washington. Do we have any sense of what might be different about this year or these past couple of weeks that have uh, seen, you know, these multiple tragedies? I don't know as you can point to one reason of why this is happening. Um, I think that you have to look... I think it's the the problem as a lot of the residents see it um, is it's a dangerous road, right? So I, I don't know if I can speak to reasons of why there's been this many in just one year, um, but I do think I can speak to the fact that just you know from hearing as from as many residents as I did that day um, last Friday, the, the issue as a lot of people pointed out is. The, the way the road is structured is dangerous. Um, obviously, anyone who lives nearby knows that the speeding is bad. Now, just to clarify, we don't know yet if speeding was a factor in the death on Friday. Um, but speeding has been a factor in injuries and deaths there in the past. And reckless driving is an issue. I spoke to one resident um, along there. I, I interviewed one resident who said, basically, you know, I, I live in a galaxy building. I, I'm looking out over this road every day, and every day you can pretty much, I mean, point out another issue of reckless driving. And so it's not just speeding, but it's also, you know, driving in the wrong lanes or passing people in the wrong areas. Um, all these different factors that contribute to this road just, I mean, being practically notorious for danger. Again, I, I walk across this road all the time. Um and it's, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, right? I mean, anyone can attest to that. It's, it's just an inherently dangerous road, and I think that that's what these deaths underscore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know Madison Mayor Saya Rhodes-Conway has expressed her concerns about these accidents uh, a number of times recently. Um, what has she been saying, and what have other public officials been saying? You know, uh, we, we talked to her uh, after the third or the third death this year or the one that had happened, I believe it's last weekend now. Um, and, you know, and she's, she has told us this is a concern that she shares. Um, and she points to Vision Zero, right? So that's Vision Zero is the city's current plan for addressing this. It's a strategic system that about uh, several dozen other cities around the nation are using to basically try and set a timeline for this is when we want to eliminate traffic deaths in our city. And so Madison signed on to that last year. It's a 10-year plan um, that includes factors like reducing speed limits. So as many people know, last year, uh, speed limits along sections of East Washington were reduced. There's been other things like retiming of the traffic signals, um, making crosswalks uh, more visible. And so there's all these different um, parts of this project, all these different strategies that are being used to try and make East Washington safer. And that's what the mayor uh, points to as here's our strategy, right, for eliminating dangers. I also spoke to Brian Benford. He represents District 6, which, as many people might know, that represents a lot of the property along one side of um, East Washington. And, you know, he, he's newer uh, to represent District 6. He's, he's been an elder person in the past in Madison. But, you know, he's like, Vision Zero is a great start. It, it's a great project. But there's more we have to do, right? There's more strategies that have to be implemented. And that's something I hear echoed from a lot of people that I spoke to both in person, online. I've been talking, dialoguing with a lot of people about this issue who live in this area. And there are a lot of people who live here feel like there's more that should be done. They point to examples from other cities, you know, strategies that might, you know, could be introduced to work better. And I think there's a lot of question marks right now around that and what could be done more beyond what's being done to to make this road safer. But that's what I'm hearing. That's what a lot of residents are telling me is they don't feel like enough is being done and they want a broader look at different strategies to be brought in. Naomi Coles is the lead investigative reporter for Channel 3000. Thanks so much for joining me today, Naomi. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're listening to WORT Local News. Thank you for listening to our special year in review. I'm your host, Nate Wuggie Help. 
To celebrate the holidays, our volunteers took a week off to rest and spend time with their families while we took a look at some of the stories from this year that affected our city. Tonight's theme, get me where I need to go from cars to buses to bikes. Coming up, we'll look at Madison's other big transportation issue this year, bus rapid transit. But first, some announcements. Back in a flash. Was your New Year's resolution for 2021 to just make it through? Why not try something new in 2022? Take all the experience you gained giving presentations to your pets in quarantine and bring it to the WORT airwaves. We are looking for a number of new hosts, engineers, and producers for a variety of shows. Looking to improve your scientific chops? Perpetual Notion Machine could use your inquiring mind on Thursday evenings. Want to get more involved in Madison's LGBTQIA2 community? Query would love to have you on Wednesday evenings. Interested in women's issues? Our Buy Women for Women news show, Her Turn, needs your voice on Sunday mornings. Do you think international issues need more coverage? Worldview needs interviewers and engineers for Sunday evenings. Applicants must be fully vaccinated with a one-year commitment. We provide all the free training you need. Engineers should have some familiarity with computers and a willingness to work as part of a team. To get started, call Adrian Ranny at 608-321-9583 or email adrian at wardfm.org. Or head online to wardfm.org and look under the How to Help tab. Here's to 2022. WORT thanks its listener sponsors and Union Cab of Madison, a worker cooperative since 1979, providing taxi service in Dane County and beyond, 24 hours a day. Download our app for iOS or Android or call us at 242-2000. You're listening to WORT Local News, the special year in review edition. I'm your host, Nate Lookyhout. Tonight, we are looking at transportation issues around Madison. One of the biggest and most controversial of these issues in Madison this year was bus rapid transit. The goal of bus rapid transit, or BRT, is to do exactly what it says, speed up the time it takes to get from one side of the city to another. But the project is still in its early stages, and it hasn't been without controversy. In June, a public affair host, Carousel Baird, spoke with Thomas Lynch and Justin Sturenberg from the City Department of Transportation about the project. This is a segment of their half-hour conversation. We have Tom Lynch. He's the director of transportation, and Justin Sturenberg. He's the general manager of Metro Transit. Hi, Tom. How are you doing today? Good. Beautiful day. And Justin, hello. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hello. Thank you for having us. It's great to have you. So let's, can someone kick us off with sort of, let's start with a simple question. Remind us, what is bus rapid transit? Justin, why don't you take that and then maybe I can say why we're doing it. Okay. So uh, bus rapid transit um, is uh, an investment in infrastructure that's really intended to enhance the the bus service. Um, And it was originally envisioned as kind of a replacement for light rail systems uh, to serve many of the same purposes. So um, in many cases, it has dedicated lanes to allow the buses to move more quickly through traffic. Um, It has stations um, rather than bus stops, they're actual stations um, that have um, enhanced amenities like um, potentially Wi-Fi, lighting, ticket vending machines, real-time signs to tell you when the next bus will come, additional overhead canopy protection from the weather, um, and all of it raised up slightly um, so that the floor of that station is about 14 inches off the ground, allowing uh, those in wheelchairs and with other mobility challenges to board the bus much more quickly and are able to just um, roll or step right onto the bus without any step up. So those stations are intended to provide additional passenger comfort, um, but also to speed up that boarding process so that um, the buses spend a lot less time sitting and waiting for people to shove dollar bills in the machine at the beginning, at the front of the bus and more time moving and and transporting people. And then does BRT get us from spot one to spot two faster? Is that part of the intent behind it? Yeah, so it, it, it's not an express service. So that's often confused. You know, express service is closed door service, you know, 
several miles apart uh, where people board and the bus doesn't stop until it reaches a destination. Bus rapid transit is um, intended to serve the entire corridor, so it will still have stations every half mile or so, um, but that is less than what our current system has, which has a stop you know, almost every block. Um, and so the buses between the dedicated lanes, the faster boarding times, and the more space between stations, um, the bus does move more quickly and allow people to move across town much more quickly while also still serving the entire corridor. Okay, got it. Thanks for that sort of overlay, Justin. And then, Tim, you were going to sort of chime in with uh, more to that and, and why it's coming to Madison. Or sorry, Tom, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been in the Madison area for almost 30 years and well, actually over 30 years. And as far as I can remember back, back to 1992, we've been trying to get some type of high capacity, high service level transit. It started with a light rail study in 1992, and then it went to transport uh, 2020, commuter rail, light rail, streetcar on Park Street. And then uh, the concept of bus rapid transit started to take off around 2013. And we're coming, you know, we're getting closer to the finish line. If you, if you think about Madison, okay, 2019 and 2020. So those are, you know, one of those years is a non-pandemic year, but the other is a pandemic year. But even with that, the Madison approved 9,400 dwelling units. So you think about that, 9,400 dwelling units in two years, all right? And that creates 80,000 trips, right? In the four years from 2017 to 2020, you know, Madison approved 5 million square feet of office, commercial, and industrial institutional space. So you, know, you put all that together and, and that just starts to add up to lots of trips that are generated by I'm just going to say a healthy, growing city. But when you look at our roads and where we're situated, right, we're on an isthmus. And if you stare down East Washington Avenue, you see, well, can you add a lane? You really can't add a lane, right? You can't add a lane without tearing down buildings or taking away sidewalks and trees. Uh, you can look at the same thing with uh, maybe Mineral Point Road or University Avenue. And there's just no more room to expand. So we... We have to figure out how to, to serve this development in a different way. We have to kind of go from, I used to use this a couple of years ago, we have to go from being a big little city to a little big city and start to start to address our transportation challenges the way big cities do by using transit and getting uh, more people onto buses and fewer people out of into cars. And I... Tom, I appreciate that because that, I mean, that just fits in right. The next thought was, how did we determine that this is a good fit for Madison? And I, I like that Justin at the beginning talked about how this is an enhancement of the services that we have already. How was it determined that instead of adding to the Madison Metro services that we have right now, that BRT was the, was the right fit? I get, I like the idea of we're just growing and there's no more room and that we are a city on an isthmus, whether we like it or not, you can, even if you add more lanes to West Wash and East Wash, I'm not sure how you do that, right? But that at some point it gets smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter on an isthmus. We just can't build parking lots, nor I think are we a kind of community that wants to. So how did Bus Rabbit Transit turn in because I remember the conversations about trolley and that didn't really stick. And yet I appreciate that bus rapid transit seems to really be sticking and getting that community buy-in. What do you think it was about bus rapid transit that, that got the community on ball uh, on board? Uh, perhaps pun intended. Yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll start Justin and then you can, you can add to that. If you think about just the cost, okay. You know, bus rapid transit can be implemented for, I'm going to say roughly $8 million a mile, somewhere in there, you know, whereas light rail is typically implemented f for between uh, 60 to $100 million a mile. So you think about it, it's it's quite a bit, eight times more expensive. And so uh, if we were to have a, a light rail line from, you know, West Town to East Town, that would be a half billion dollars. You know, that's just an enormous amount of money. Is it really feasible? And is that a wise investment? you know, for a, a city like Madison. But, you know, bus rapid transit, conversely, is very cost-effective. In fact, it was developed 
in Latin America because of its cost effectiveness, yet provides many of the same benefits of rail, which kind of gets into the to the second point. If if we just expanded local bus service, but we didn't mm -hmm. provide transit uh, a priority, then our congestion would grow and our buses would be stuck in that congestion. In fact, yeah. I have I have pictures of uh, of congestion on East Washington just being totally jammed. Uh, the same with University Avenue. And so we, we don't need more buses in congestion, right? We need buses to be given a, a pr the ability to uh, provide consistent service that's on time. And by uh, by providing, you know, dedicated running ways and the like, we're able to, I'm just going to say, give transit riders a, a opportunity to have uh, expected arrival times, on-time service, not get delayed by the congestion that, tra you know, motor vehicle use garners. Mm -hmm. and, and would... Would bus rapid transit, Justin? Maybe you can help with this. Is is this something you know? I'm 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 a New Yorker, and I and I I moved here from I moved here from New York, and and a lot of times, you, right? You go to the subway in New York, you don't have you don't look at the ride guide, you don't know when the train is coming. You just show up in New York and expect that at some point the subway is going to show up soon. And is that sort of the same thought about this of the ride guide, which right, my husband works for Madison Metro. We got copies of ride guides. My husband's been editing ride guides this whole, our, our whole marriage. But the idea of not having to look at it, when is the next bus coming? But BRT is just, hey, every 15 minutes or whatever it is, there's going to be a bus. If you come and stand at this station, you will go to where you're going. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a big a big part of this is the infrastructure, um, but also a big part is the service. So we would we do envision that um, the service will be at least every 15 minutes or better um, mm -hmm. all day long and through the weekend. That exactly to your point, that allows you to not build your life around a bus schedule, but instead just walk out whenever you whenever the, whenever you want, and the bus is generally always coming soon. And so that really unlocks a, a big potential in in ridership as people can start to see that as a, a genuine option for all of their daily needs rather than just something that maybe they they build their life around you know just for that eight to five commute to the office and so we we view that as a as a huge potential benefit as well talk to, can you talk to us about what the proposed routes are i know there was sort of a east to west proposal and then a north to south proposal are those both moving at the same times or or and and maybe i'm not even saying it right tell us tell us what it's going to look like when this infrastructure comes here to madison sure i can take that one tom so uh, at its core there you know from essentially east town to west town mall there is that's the core of our brt line that's where the infrastructure will be built the stations the dedicated lanes all of that um, but in terms of service patterns there's actually three different service patterns that would overlap all all of which would be brt but would only function in that way while it's in the corridor so there would be one route that would essentially go the full length east town to west town mall another route that would go from roughly north north transfer point to south transfer point um, and overlap with the brt from first and east wash to campus and that would provide doubled up service in that section and then a third one that would go from the square out to the west uh, out university and and then would branch out towards middleton so, you know, all that told for between the campus and the square, we'd have a bus every five minutes all day, you know, almost all day long. So okay. um, that provides a really strong level of service in the core area where we most need it, where, you know, frankly, where most of our ridership is. And, and that allows the frequency of service to, to kind of taper off a little bit as you get further and further out from downtown. But again, critically, um, each of those would always be every 15 minutes. So even out at Easttown Mall, you still have a bus every 15 minutes, which is a, a huge benefit compared to what's today. Um, and then with the North-South line, we do have plan to, to upgrade that to BRT the whole route. So, you know, in its first, uh, in this initial build out, it would just be operating as BRT at BRT stations from first and East Wash to Park Street. But in the future, we would come back and build stations and dedicated lanes north and south of there to make that north south line a, a kind of fully functional BRT. Now, 
That was a segment from A Public Affair with host Carousel Baird speaking with Thomas Lynch and Justin Sturenberg from the City Department of Transportation. The full episode is titled City Updates, Bus Rapid Transit, and Zoning Changes. You can listen to the full episode on our website, wortfm.org, or on the A Public Affair podcast. The bus rapid transit project has been the subject of some criticism, particularly over whether rapid transit buses should run on State Street and the fact that the first phase would leave out some communities in the north and south sides. Signs that read, no BRT on State Street became a prominent sight over the summer. And it wasn't just business owners. Constant editorials from the Wisconsin State Journal bemoaned the concept of buses on State Street, arguing that the gathering place could become a sort of pedestrian mall. These tensions flared over the city's budget process in November, when city alders introduced a proposal that would temporarily halt funds for the bus rapid transit system. WORT News Director Sholly Pittman had the story back in November. This week, Madison leaders are slated to finalize the city's capital and operating budgets. On Friday, Alders released more than two dozen proposed amendments to the budgets. Those proposals request funding for everything from the city's mental health first responders program to small loans to build small backyard dwellings. But one amendment to the city's capital budget could add a hiccup to the city's plans for the future of bus transportation. Five Madison Alders are proposing halting funds for bus rapid transit, or BRT, until certain conditions are met. First, the amendment asks city staff to propose an alternative to using State Street as a route for bus rapid transit. Council President Syed Abbas says that's due to public pushback. As we heard, significant concerns from stakeholders and also business community, as well as local vendors and their desire to create pedestrian and bicyclist boulevard. Secondly, the amendment would suspend planning work for bus rapid transit that's underway by city staff until alders sign off on modification of bus routes under a related project to redesign bus routes called Network Redesign. Here's Alder Abbas again. The second part of that amendment is about network redesign, non-BRT routes. Uh, They're basically removing some of the buses on a BRT road, replacing them with BRT, and with that network redesign, especially as an alder of District 12 and North Side, we will have significant impact with the network redesign and some people who used to get bus in front of their door, now they perhaps need to walk half mile, couple of blocks, three blocks. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway scorned the amendment in a press release on Friday. She tells WORT today that the amendment is confusing and unnecessary. Either they're trying to make sure that the council has continued oversight over the bus rapid transit project and the Metro Network redesign project, but the council has oversight over both of those projects already. And there's a number of checkpoints going forward where the council will have to vote to proceed on both of those projects. If what they're looking for is that assurance, that's already going to happen, and so the amendment isn't necessary. If they're looking for design alternatives on the bus rapid transit project, we've been through that conversation already. Those design alternatives exist. The council's voted twice on it. Staff are following the council's direction at this point, and to make staff stop work and not be able to spend any money on the project means that they couldn't actually produce any further design for the council to vote on. During the open budget process, the amendment only needs 11 alders to pass. Currently, five alders, that's Carter, Harrington McKinney, Miadze, Revere, and Council President Abbas, are sponsoring the amendment. Abbas says the two projects, BRT and Network Redesign, are related. He says the intention of this amendment is to ensure the city doesn't waste future funds by redrawing routes again down the line. Supporter of BRT. Asking for accountability or clarification does not mean I want to kill the project or stop this project. The network redesign both are correlated, and that's something I truly feel people need to understand. Uh, it, it is just same like your traffic enforcement and parking Traffic design and parking is correlated, same BRT and network redesign is correlated because you are running BRT on the same network of buses and removing them. So that's kind of like two part of this amendment, asking alternative and also really making sure that network redesign 
is also visible if the staff already spend millions of dollars and uh, hundred thousands of dollars or million dollars and time and then when they come to council and if we say well this network redesign in particular district does not really fit well then we might get into the same situation like straight street but the mayor pushes back she says the council is still engaged in both projects the the metro network redesign has been going on for months um, there's a great report out there with all the relevant information. Obviously, the the network redesign and the bus rapid transit project are are related and and fit together. They don't both have to move forward uh, either on the same time frame or necessarily uh, in concert. I think that to fully take advantage of the bus rapid transit project, we should engage in a network redesign because it's an opportunity for us to make the most of these backbones of transit running through our community. It, we don't have to do it, though. It's not necessary to move the rapid transit project forward. The mayor adds that the amendment could delay BRT and come with costs in the future, about $5 million a year due to inflation. She says it could also jeopardize the entire project by threatening Madison's place in line for federal funding. I feel very strongly that we need to keep these projects moving forward with input from alders. Um, And so let's get that input. uh, Let's make sure we have those checks and balances and let's not stop staff from doing the good work that they're doing on both these projects. The Madison Common Council will begin deciding the final capital and operating budgets tomorrow with potential meetings on Wednesday and Thursday nights if needed. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Shally Pittman. Just one day later, the council voted down that amendment and the bus rapid transit system was allowed to continue. Amidst the ordeal was confusion over bus rapid transit and a related project called Network Redesign. Also in November, Shotley Pittman and Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan talked more about the Metro Redesign, bus rapid transit, and the way they are and aren't related. With me in the studio is Dylan Brogan, senior staff writer at Isthmus Newspaper. He has a news section in Isthmus called Tell Dylan, a news wrap of several local issues. Dylan, congratulations on your new news nook. Thank you. So this month's Tell Dylan was prescient as the first half is dedicated to Metro Transit's network redesign, which we talked about just a few minutes ago on this broadcast. Dylan, you talked to Tom Lynch, the city's transportation director, in October, and he said that network redesign may be an even bigger thing than BRT. Tell me about your conversation with Tom Lynch. Yes, it was a very long conversation, and uh, Tom Lynch is very good at slowly explaining all the complicated details, and this is complicated. So when BRT kind of was, we were headed down that path, right, of this bus rapid transit system, it became obvious that this whole, the whole bus network really needed to be redesigned if we were going to go the BRT route, right? So this network redesign, um, and the city likes to separate them out into two issues, but the backbone, the spine of of the BRT system is going to be a new, completely different transit network for all the buses in Madison. So bus rapid transit doesn't replace every bus in town. It's really just these core central lines that run more frequently, right? So in order to do that, um, the city started a parallel track of redesigning the whole network to accommodate this new system. So that uh, was very much up for debate and kind of caused some controversy during the budget meetings that happened this week, too. Absolutely. You describe it as a fundamental reorganization of everything relating to the bus routes. Well, Tom Lynch does, yes. (laughs) Okay. And tell me, what does that fundamental reorganization mean? I mean, I think with the ongoing budget process, some alders and uh, perhaps members of the public are concerned about losing access to buses that come right outside of their door, right? So in your conversation, in your article, you kind of talk about two different network alternatives that were released in August. Um, Yes, after working with the, the transportation planning board, which has been kind of the lead committee on this, and after spending a lot of money on a consultant um, that was approved by Alders and the mayor in the last budget. It struck me as uh, there are two extreme alternatives of what's possible, almost like two poles between this redesign. Yes. So, yeah, and remember, there's going to be public input process here, and we're kind of reaching 
uh, a new phase of this total redesign. Every single route is going to change in the bus network. So everyone's going to have to relearn the whole thing. And that, I had some memorized. I'm a little yeah, upset well, about that. Well, you're going to have to forget it. And people, um, and it makes sense when you're, um, you got all this federal money to install all these new buses with new platforms that are going to be running much more often. So basically the city's process was we're going to come up with these two extremes. Both of them are both realistic. You know, this is what the city says, but um, they represent kind of two different ideologies almost. So there's the, the ridership map. Now, this map was designed to accommodate, uh, hopefully, as many riders with a bus line that is running frequently and often, but maybe further away. Now, the coverage map more aligns to what we have now, which is a, a system that relies on transfer points and is very good because, in some ways because it reaches a lot of areas of the city regardless of where they are geographically. But there's a downside to each one of them. So the ridership option would definitely, you'd have to walk further. Most people are going to have to walk a little bit further to a bus stop, but they're going to come more often. And the positive to that is, well, perhaps if it comes more often, that's actually more helpful than a bus that stops right outside your door but only comes once an hour. Now, uh, the coverage map, though, tries to align what we have now with uh, this new bus rapid transit system and does reach more neighborhoods. But there are definitely routes that are going to end and that some stops uh, in some neighborhoods on the periphery of the city are not going to have as good of coverage. But, it, again, it comes down to what, do you, what is a better transit system? Buses that come more often but are further away or buses that come closer by but not as often. And you can kind of see why this is a polarizing issue. And Tom Lynch, uh, you know, the city's transit director, says up front this is going to cause waves. And it didn't really get up a lot of attention until like this week. This week. Absolutely. I've learned a yeah, lot about hey, it. The article came out a week before. I, You know, I, we say in the intro that Isthmus now comes out once a month. So you uh, you looked in your crystal ball and you saw this coming. So. Good job, Dylan. Yes, I frequently <laughs> rely on crystal balls. <laughs> so what's next? You mentioned public input. The city is slated to release a draft proposal um, in early January 2022. Yep. Uh, get started by, by looking at these alternatives. Well, it seems like they're going to come up with a, a nice balance between these two quote-unquote extremes, right? We're not going to get the one that uh, is increases ridership, uh, and we're not going to get the one that perhaps provides the most coverage to the most neighborhoods. And and that is a big part of the debate because there are certain, uh, okay, it was a real effort, especially in the Soglin administration, to increase what's called equity routes. And that, mm -hmm. uh, like it or not, um, the core of the city has always been served fairly well. And it just, um, if you were on the Isthmus, buses were coming more often. It was more of an option to use for everyday use, mm -hmm. right? Where you, it was a real alternative to a car. But during the Southern administration, you know, they made a real effort to make sure they were going to the periphery of the city. And that's uh, where, and uh, just how it works out, is that that is where people of color and other uh, and lower income folks are tend to be on the further edges of the city. So how do you provide good transit options for them? And that's this, really what's coming up for debate in January. We're going to get a map that hopefully balances out these two competing interest and finds like the best middle ground that's what the city says but um even then uh there's going to be a big public input process and in march the city council will have to approve this as well and and what we saw this week was kind of trying to tie the brt funding to this network map and that ended up failing yeah, there's been a lot of discussion yes. over how related are the two projects, and in fairness, um, they're very they are, related. They are related, yes. right? <laughs> very. No, they wouldn't be doing the transit redesign if it if BRT wasn't coming. And I I think last night I didn't put it in my story, but um, I think there was an ad admittal that um, communication over network redesign, especially to policymakers, wasn't as great as it could have been. And so. that is something we hear on nearly every issue, right? Isn't it? <laughs> That's true. That's it's why we're here. And I'm not trying to diminish the problem, but public input in city policies is doesn't seem to be enough. It's very these things. There, hey, there were a lot of meetings that people could attended, but this sort of flew under the radar, and you can see why people would be shocked by the change. But you know what? People sort of once they see that their bus is no longer, uh, you know, have the same route, that's when it becomes real to people, and when they want to engage. So that is happening. 
Uh, and that will happen in January. And I think there can be a lot of public input that leads to some real changes in what ends up being the whole network redesign and, and what routes need to be prioritized and what neighborhoods should be and to make sure everyone is maybe not happy but can live with it. Another big, huge problem with public input, though, is what about the thousands of people that would use the bus system uh, if it ran faster but aren't using it now? That's a lot of people, too, Mm -hmm. from a lot of different communities and not just affluent ones. So how do you get them involved in a process that they don't even really know they're a part of yet? Dylan, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. I've been speaking with Isthmus senior reporter Dylan Brogan about several stories in the latest monthly edition of Isthmus newspaper. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride it where I The design phase of BRT is scheduled to be completed sometime next year, with construction for the project beginning in 2023. The city hopes to open the bus rapid transit system to riders in 2024. But cars and buses are not the only way to get around Madison. The city has had a long history of bike love, and when the pandemic hit, it became a way for people to exercise and socialize outdoors. One Madison resident saw an opportunity to help support Madison's love affair with bikes during the pandemic and opened his own pop-up bike repair shop. Danielle Cronow had the story in November. Ian Astrike founded Curbside Bicycles in April 2020, just as the pandemic was taking off in Wisconsin. The pop-up shop has a simple business model, set up shop from Astrike's vehicle. I was working as a fitness coach at Orange Theory Fitness, and organized fitness was not a thing during the pandemic, so we shut down, and I didn't want to sit around and do nothing, so I started doing house calls. Actually, the person's house who we're at today is was a past Orange Theory Fitness member. So I started just reaching out to members and being like, hey, you need a bike to tune up so you can ride it during the pandemic and actually stay fit. Then I'm in these beautiful neighborhoods. Tons of people are walking around or biking and bike shops are four weeks out. And I realized I know how to tune up bikes. I could offer them a same day turnaround rather than have to have them wait a whole month. So I started doing pop-up bike shops and the response was so amazing and the community just really turned out for me that by the time uh, Orange Theory opened back up and I was off my job back, I was able to decline and fully support myself on this business. A-Strike arrived at his pop-up shop one day to find 10 or so bikes waiting for him. Afterward, a full day's work became more and more consistent. He realized just a few months in that his newly forged path was going to work. He says the pandemic put him in a unique situation to try something new. Well, one of the nice things is I didn't sort of up and quit a job, you know, like I wasn't like, you know what, I'm going to go out and forge my own path and I'm going to quit everything that's comfortable. Everything that was comfortable kind of got taken from me. So the doubts didn't really have to be there because if it failed, I would be right back to the point I was at, right? I was no worse for it. But yeah, certainly in the beginning, I was, was, who knows where it was going to go. I didn't certainly envision that by second year, the very next year I'd have an employee and we'd be doing this well. So now at this point, the question is, can I continue this much success in Madison, which I think I can. I think the concept of being able to walk your bike a couple blocks and get a same day turnaround tune up for cheaper than anywhere in town is something that people obviously enjoy and gravitate towards. Every weekend, A-Strike is somewhere new for pop-ups. This weekend, he's in a residential neighborhood on Madison's west side, setting up shop outside the home of a family who have offered to host the pop-up shop in their driveway for a day. Russ Lemon and his family hosted A-Strike's Saturday Bike Shop, as well as had their bikes tuned up and fixed. We had two of our kids' bikes uh, that needed some brakes fixed, and he helped us out and got them going really quick. By 9 a.m., clients are driving and biking up. Lying in the grass on either side of the host's driveway are bikes from neighborhood residents and local citizens. There are about 10 bikes or so in counting. All right. So we just changed the tires, put the tires back on the bike, make sure they're nice and centered. Now the brake pads are rubbing, as you can hear. And we don't want that. So I'm going to adjust the screws on the side of the brakes to change the tension of which each of the pads 
are bringing themselves out. Um, some brakes adjust very easily, others are frustrating, and I'm... Okay, these might be alright. I was anticipating these being frustrating. And now that's the sound of the wheel spinning, and you can't really hear anything. Mini problem fixed! Outstanding. Acerick learned how to fix Antoinette bikes apart from his dad. He says a lot of it is just trial and error. My dad was a big biker, and so he did a lot of his own repairs. So I've kind of just been around it, right? Like, oh, you tire pop, you change your tire. Something's off, you got to adjust this. And so then I kind of grew up like just YouTubing and figuring out how to do it myself. Um, I spent one summer at a local bike shop. It's not around here. But honestly, this business and doing the literal thousands of bike tune-ups that I've done uh, has really taught me a lot more and made me much faster. The one part of his business Astrike kept questioning last year was how he would make it work during the winter. He thought about using that time to plan for the next year. But then he decided to take his shop to Arizona after talking with a friend, where he fixed approximately 200 bikes last winter. Astrike says he's planning to do the same thing this winter. I'd love to be a 27-year-old snowbird. That'd be outstanding, but we'll see. It kind of remains to be seen. Astrike prefers having one year planned. He feels anything beyond that point will derail, and then all that planning will have been for nothing. First two years, Scottsdale and Phoenix. I don't like to plan more than a year in advance, because you plan more than a year in advance, your plans are going to change. And then you get all this planning and all this work, and you realize, oh wait, given this past year, it now is kind of all bunk. So, I have one year planned, Scottsdale and Phoenix, then I'll be back here next year. Beyond that, I don't know. And I don't want to know, honestly. I think planning further out into the future is more stress than it's worth. Since Astrike started his business during the pandemic, he hasn't tested it under non-pandemic circumstances. He says that there may be some adjustments as routines shift again. Certain days of the week may not work as well, and neighborhood pop-ups may not work as well when people return to the workplace. Astrike says he might try more workplace pop-up shops. I asked him what path he plans to use for sustaining his business. Continuing on the same path I'm on. <laughs> it's been working so far. The curbside um, or the neighborhood pop-up bike shop model is something that doesn't really exist. So that's a new model and it's been killing it. So I'll continue that and, you know, maybe expand into working with more businesses in the future. But Astrike isn't alone. He hired an employee to help him with the business so he could expand and an intern to help him with social media. Much like his current employee, he'll let future employees hang with him at first to see how the job is done. After that, He'll have them do pop-up shops on their own and touch base with him through phone or email. He doesn't plan anything more than a year in advance, but he expresses his hopes and goals for the foreseeable future. Permanently start another branch in another city. I think that's the most salient goal right now. And also continue to have next year, if I could have two employees brought on, that'd be awesome. For WORT News, I'm Danielle Cronow. And that does it for tonight's show. Thank you for two reporters, Jonah Chester, Will Chosey, Danielle Cronow, and Charlie Pittman. And a special thanks to Carousel Bear, host of A Public Affair. Dylan Brogan was your engineer tonight, and I'm your host and producer, Nate Luggiehel. This concludes our week of specials, and we will return to our regular news program in 2022. You can listen to this episode and all of our other newscasts on the WORT Local News Podcast. Find it on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Happy New Year and good night.